0: Внимание. Говорит и показывает Москва. Федор, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Никто в не слушал. Привет, в это Навальный. В Я уже раз разу свою разу работу, делал. а сотрудники безопасности
1: С вас. С новым веком. It's led European leaders to order EU-based airlines to stop flying over Belarusian airspace and to ban Belarusian carriers from flying over EU airspace or landing in its airports. It's isolated Belarus like never before. It will almost certainly spark a new round of US and EU sanctions against Belarus. And it is bound to come up when US President Joe Biden meets Kremlin leader Vladimir Putin in Geneva next month. But serious questions remain about whether the authoritarian regime of Alexander Lukashenko acted alone in forcing Ryanair flight 4978 to land in Minsk, where authorities arrested Belarusian dissident journalist Roman Pratasevich and his girlfriend, Sofia Sapirka. More specifically, did Lukashenko get a stealthy assist from Vladimir Putin's Russia in hijacking a commercial airliner traveling between two European Union countries? Was the putin lukashenko axis of autocrats acting in concert in this brazen act of air piracy? And if so, what are the implications for Western policy? Today, we'll discuss all this with a veteran US diplomat with extensive experience in the post-Soviet space, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington DC's Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas-Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies, in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine, He's also been president of Freedom House and a senior director at the McCain Institute. These days, David's a senior fellow and lecturer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of Public Affairs. Welcome back to The Vertical, David.
0: Thanks very much, Brian. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks. And I, I had to use all the discipline I could muster not to make some kind of smart aleck Florida man comment here as I was introducing you, but I, I, I didn't because I know, just like me, you're a you're a New England kid.
0: I um, am indeed. Yes. Go
1: Sox. So, David, <laughs> count me among those who suspect that Russia had a role in this incident, as I, I wrote in my column this week for the Atlantic Council. First off, given the fact that the Russian and Belarusian air defense systems are completely integrated. It's hard to believe that Russia wasn't at least aware of this from the get-go. Second, as many observers have noted, the Belarusian KGB, while repressive at home, really lacks the international network to track Belarusian dissidents abroad, although the Russian intelligence services, on the other hand, do this all the time with their own dissidents, would be more than capable of doing with Belarusian dissidents. There's also the issue of those mysterious three passengers. Who disembarked in Minsk and did not reboard the flight to its final destination in Vilnius. And finally, this incident suits Russia's interests. It makes Lukashenko even more of a pariah and thus even more dependent on Putin. Suddenly, nobody's talking about Navalny anymore. My working hypothesis, for what it's worth, and is based on some data, is that this was a classic reflexive control operation. Russian intelligence passed the information that Pratasevich was on that flight to their Belarusian counterparts and then just let it play out. David, how do you see this?
0: I think, Brian, in your column, I think was spot on. I think you have good reason to be suspicious about collaboration between the Russian services and the Belarus services here. I do think the Belarus services are a little more capable, maybe, than you might give them credit for because they have a sole focus, which is to go after any critics and opponents of of Lukashenko and his regime. Their reach is limited, however. And there, I think, in in the case of Athens and at the airport, that might have been help from the Russians. We've heard conflicting reports about who the three other passengers were. The Lithuanians have said that they were Belarusians. So that issue is a little up in the air. That said, I think what we can judge is the reaction from Moscow, and it has been largely supportive. In fact, I think increasingly supportive as the days go on, uh, where you had zaharova and the um, Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs expressing shock that the EU was shocked. Lavrov saying that it was an acceptable response. And Margarita Simenon, uh was almost uh, ecstatic about the way Lukashenko handled this. Uh, yeah, she was of t- Exactly. And then more recently, later in the week, we are seeing uh, in response to the decision by the European Union to prohibit EU flights over uh, Belarus airspace and to ban Belavia flights to the EU. We are seeing now reports that the Russian authorities are not providing approval for flight patterns, say from Austrian air and Lufthansa, that would avoid Belarus airspace. And and so those flights have been canceled. And so what this suggests is that the Russian authorities and Mr. Putin are getting completely into bed with a guy who I would argue and I think you would agree is responsible for hijacking, uh, air piracy, I would would go so far as to use the term terrorism. Do you buy into this uh, notion that this was a Russian reflexive
1: control operation, where they basically set the ball in motion, structured the environment, so Lukashenko would do this, they would have complete plausible deniability, and in the long run, this would effectively benefit Russia by effectively closing off the West in any way, shape, or form to the Lukashenko regime at any time in the future, and kind of changing the subject effectively in President Biden's upcoming summit with Putin.
0: To some degree, I do. I, I, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to buy the point you made in, in the beginning that this shifts the subject away from the Navalny. I think, unfortunately, that had already been happening yes. before Sunday's incident. The, the, the subject of the Navalny has not come up anywhere near as much as it did January, February, even into March. Um, it's not to say that it's been dropped completely. That said, I'm not sure that Putin would have wanted this whole scenario to play out. He could have ended much worse than it did. Mm -hmm. And while I'm not saying that the MIG that was sent up to escort the airliner down into Minsk was prepared to shoot down the Ryanair flight, let's not forget that in 1995, there was a hot air balloon incident uh, in which a hot air balloon went from Polish airspace into over Belarus territory and was shot down by Belarus authorities, and two Americans were killed in the process. Big difference between a hot air balloon and a civilian airline, and nevertheless, it shows that Lukashenko will pretty much do whatever is necessary in order to stay in power. As you and I have discussed before. There's no love between Putin and Lukashenko. I think Putin can't stand him, and it may be mutual. We'll see what happens when they meet in Sochi. That, I think, will be an important gathering between Mm -hmm. the two leaders, and we'll get a sign of how much support there is from Putin for this. Let's remember that Putin bailed out Lukashenko last fall with $1.5 billion loan, Um, not a huge sum, particularly compared to the loan given to Yanukovych in 2013. But nevertheless, I don't know whether this kind of scenario was what the Kremlin had in mind, and I'm not sure that it's being faced with the choice that it would want to make, which is between supporting what Lukashenko did and, and, and standing with the West. It's obviously not going to stand with the West. It's going to stand with Lukashenko. Right. But it's certainly going to create some friction, I would expect, in the meeting between Biden and, and Putin. And this is all playing out as, you know, leaks to
1: the media suggest that Russia has kind of a plan B in place in Belarus. And it shows how their strategy in the post-Soviet space has gotten a lot more sophisticated in recent years. And that they're, they're hoping for something like an Armenia scenario, where you basically get somebody who is acceptable to the West, but can be controlled by the Russians effectively. And I worry that we may be playing into... Putin's hands here in this, if you thought the goal here was to make Lukashenko such a pariah that Russia and the West would basically agree to get rid of him. Russia's already got the pieces in place to basically control a post-Lukashenko- Belarus, They're pushing them for this constitutional reform to create a so-called parliamentary republic. They're already putting the media and political pieces in place in order to to dominate that. As we discussed last time, they're effectively buying out the crown jewels of the Belarusian economy if they can be called crown jewels. Is there a risk that we're playing into Putin's hands here by going after Lukashenko? Not suggesting he doesn't deserve to be gone after,
0: but... Understood. No, and you could have the Zapad exercise that will be coming up in the fall that will deepen even more of the integration of the Belarusian and Russian militaries. I think that we have no choice here. We have to come to grips with the fact that as long as Lukashenko remains in power, he will remain a threat to the people of Belarus, he will remain a threat to Europe, he could remain a threat to any civilian passenger plane that flies over and near Belarus territory. There's the broader issue here about how we respond to this incident because other leaders like Putin, like Xi, like Erdogan, you name the, the list, They are watching to see what Lukashenko gets away with. So on this specific issue, I think we have a responsibility to make sure he pays a significant price for this. On the broader issue of how we handle Lukashenko, I think now President Biden needs to turn the summit and use it as leverage with Putin by saying, in word and deed, you need to end your support for Alexander Lukashenko. I think without Putin's support, Lukashenko collapses. Now, that's not to say that a better, brighter day will emerge uh, the the next day after Lukashenko leaves, but as long as Lukashenko is there, we know things are not going to get better. If Putin wants this meeting and he's been playing cute with Biden, uh, only recently agreeing to a date and time, I think Biden should say we'll meet but after what Lukashenko has just done you have a choice to make you either stand with Lukashenko in which case I'll find something else to do on June 16th or you you distance yourself from Lukashenko in which case I think without Putin's support Lukashenko goes
1: and I think that yeah, this gets like you know too conspiratorial by half but I think that is something Putin's okay with I think that's something Putin is more than OK with. And then so he looks like he's making a concession to the West, when in reality, he's getting what he wanted all along, basically being able to continue controlling Belarus without the troublesome problem of this mercurial Lukashenko that he, again, cannot. They, they hate each other personally. So does that risk bother you?
0: I, I know uh, before we went on the air here, Brian, you and I were a little worried we'd agree too much. Here, I might disagree. Um, and and here I think that if they had a plan B that they were ready to execute, they would have done it already. I think they are not quite sure what to do, and uh, they they generally are not shy about moving on their preferences and on their plan Bs or Cs or whatever the case may be, but I think they are worried that they run the risk of turning the people against them if, one, they continue to side with Lukashenko, or, two, they appear to be putting in place – a Lukashenko light, somebody uh, who would be uh, equally subservient to to the Kremlin. Um, I don't think that's going to go over well with the people of Belarus who have paid an even steeper price since August in their protests over Lukashenko's continued reign, which is now in its twenty seventh year.
1: Right. This, I mean, this doesn't, as I noted in my column, this isn't happening all in a vacuum. Too, it was just a month ago. That Remember, Russia arrested two individuals, one of them a dual Belarusian U.S. citizen, and accused them of a coup attempt or plotting a coup on the Victory Day Parade. I interpreted this at the time as another attempt by Moscow to shut the door to the West to this regime. I think they are paranoid. They're fighting the last war in a lot of ways because Lukashenko used to play this little game of tacking between Russia and the West. And I think they were trying to close that door altogether. Do you see these two incidents a month apart in any way related?
0: I'm not sure they're related, but I think it reflects that the Kremlin and Mr. Putin are capable of zaniness as much as Lukashenko is. They constantly look to project on where the responsibility lies for opposition uh, within their own borders. Putin is, as you know, uh, from Georgia in 2003 to Ukraine in 2004, even Kyrgyzstan in 2005, and then Ukraine again in 2013-14 and in in Russia as well, 2011 and 2012, refuses to believe that on their own, Georgians and Ukrainians and Kyrgyz and Russians would rise up against their own leaders, it has to be instigated by outside forces, specifically the United Mm. States. And so that conspiracy theory about this alleged assassination plot plays right into that kind of narrative. Mm. I'm not sure that then flowed into this latest incident that we saw play out on Sunday. Lukashenko is determined to go after his opponents and his critics. And it is amazing that something like this had not happened sooner. Svetlana Sikhanovskaya had made clear that she was on a similar flight, what, a week or 10 days before uh, the one that Protasevich was on. So they've had their opportunities. My guess is they have been looking at various airports. And by they, I mean, possibly in collaboration, Belarus KGB, and they're, as we know, still called the KGB agents and uh, Russian FSB. They may have been tracking a number of these people, and the one they decided to pull a trigger on was Protasevich, very unfortunately for him.
1: Yeah, that that video looked like a a hostage video. It was actually terrifying to watch. I think it's curious they didn't go after Sikhanovsky, because I mean, I I think that would have been a bridge too far. I mean, she's too much of an international celebrity right now. She's treated like a head of state all across Europe. I think they probably made a conscious decision not to go for her but to send the message to her that we can get you if we want to. Yeah, know,
0: no, I, I I agree, Brian. You know, the only thing I would say in response to that is, again, if you assume that there was a Russian role in this, a lot of people would have suspected or, or thought rather that uh, Boris Nemtsov was too high profile to go after. Mm-hmm. And he was shot and killed on a bridge yards from the Kremlin. So. I, I'm not sure to either Lukashenko or Putin, anyone is really off limits, but let's hope that this was the first and last type of episode like this. And I, you know, I've seen the the statements from the EU and now the G7 and other leaders individually calling for the immediate release, not just of Protasevich and, and his Russian girlfriend, but all political prisoners in Belarus. And unfortunately, there are a lot of them.
1: Yes, there are. Broadening this out, I mean, I see, it, kind of watching closely how Russia is kind of playing the Belarus situation over the past year, I see an increasing sophistication in Moscow's approach to the former Soviet space. They seem to have learned the lessons, some of the lessons of Ukraine. They seem to have learned some of the lessons of Georgia. They seem to have learned some of the lessons of Armenia. And are finding different ways that are, I guess, less ham-handed in how to control parts of the former Soviet space. You see this in Georgia, right, through Ivanishvili, of course. We've talked about this in the past. And we're increasingly seeing in Belarus, especially these leaks to the insider, where which basically laid out this entire plan of kind of setting up media enterprises, setting up pro-Kremlin political parties, and getting ready to dominate a post-Lukashenko Belarus, in a way that on the surface would be acceptable to the West. Do you see them really upping their game there?
0: Yes and no. I think that there is extremely poor understanding in the Kremlin and in the upper Russian political circles of Ukraine. I think they just simply don't understand Ukraine. I think Putin is shocked that his illegal occupation of Crimea and annexation and move into Donbass triggered a, a significant increase in support for joining NATO among Ukrainians. What do you think is going to happen if you're going right. to invade your neighbor? The same is true, I think, for most of the other countries in the region, which is to say, instead of attracting them through some sort of positive message, Putin is repelling them, driving them away from Moscow. And even in the case of Armenia, I would argue, there was a lot of disappointment in Armenia that Russia did not come to Armenia's aid when, in Armenia's view, Azerbaijan attacked the Nagorno-Karabakh region and regained a lot of that territory. So I'm not sure that I would say that they have become more sophisticated. I actually worry that our understanding in the West about what Mr. Putin is up to has actually gotten worse. That there is this tendency in the West to overlook what Putin is doing among his neighboring states because there is an interest and a desire from a Western perspective after all these years, seven years since sanctions were imposed in 2014, to get back to a normal relationship. Well, guess what? It's not going to happen, not as long as Mr. Putin is there. And so we better get used to this situation. And frankly, I think we need to up our game in the West and recognize that this is who Putin is. He doesn't want to see like-minded leaders in these neighboring states fall from power because he worries that if that were to happen, russians might follow suit and so that i think is the bottom line here and putin will resort to whatever measures necessary including if they turn against russia's national interest and here just very quickly if i can yeah. i think we've discussed this before putin's interest and russia's national interests don't always coincide Putin's interests are in keeping these leaders in power. He doesn't want to see Yanukovych or Lukashenko or all these guys, even if he doesn't like or respect them, he doesn't want to see them driven from power by popular movements. Uh, And yet Russia's national interests should reflect strong, vibrant, democratic, market oriented countries along its borders that are integrated more closely in the Euro-Atlantic community because that will redound to Russia's benefit. That isn't how Putin sees it.
1: No, and I think it's not just a matter of Putin. It's a matter of the kind of kleptocratic system that's based on all these, these these patron-client relationships and sanctioned kleptocracy. That type of a regime, whether or not Putin is on top of it, is going to be profoundly threatened by transparent liberal democracies on its borders. And so that, that I think, is what's what's driving this. I like your notion that we need to up our game in the West. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. What would upping our game in this space actually entail
0: it it would entail dropping our either delusions or illusions about Mr. Putin, he's been in power for 21 years. He is not going to change his stripes after all this time. In fact, the more corrupt he becomes, the more authoritarian he's going to become. And that intersection of kleptocracy and authoritarianism will mean that he will become an even bigger threat. Look, there's a lot of focus these days, as you and I both know, on China. China is a long strategic challenge to the West and to the United States in particular and we can't take our eye off china but we won't get to the long term if we don't face some of the short-term real challenges and tests we face and those are coming not just from beijing but from moscow it isn't just what putin is up to in belarus or ukraine or georgia it's what he's doing in europe and what he's doing in the united states what he's doing in syria Venezuela, uh, central african republic the list goes on and on And I've been struck, for example, you you asked, what should the West be doing? I'm really disappointed in the reaction of NATO and the Euro-Atlantic community to what I consider to have been a terrorist attack in the Czech Republic uh, Mm. in 2014 by the same two guys, apparently, who tried to poison Sergei Skripal. So Putin's agents are— plotting assassinations in various parts of Europe, maybe even in Washington with less than years ago. They're launching these attacks on ammunition depots in uh, Czech Republic uh, and Bulgaria, possibly too, from another country. These would be viewed as an act of war. Um, And and yet we just kind of say, well, you know, there they go again. We'll kick out a bunch of Russian agents from their diplomatic compounds and things. We've got to really, I think, understand that if we don't push back in a strong, aggressive, serious way on this, these things are going to not only continue to get worse.
1: I've often argued that we need to kind of go back to the Cold War era policy of containment, albeit an updated one to reflect the realities of the 21st century, to reflect the realities of a globalized, integrated world, to reflect the realities that the Soviet Union had almost no points of purchase in the Western financial system where the Russians do. I mean, I call this hybrid containment. This is the buzz phrase I kind of coined for this and have been kind of pushing. Do we need a, a new Doctrine to deal with the Russians now. I mean, because they're, they're as you said, China is kind of the main foreign policy focus. Russia seems to be looked at as secondary. How do we square that circle, do you
0: think? The problem is we don't have the luxury of picking one over the other, we have to actually confront both. And on containment, I mean, I titled my book, Back to Containment, Dealing with Putin's Regime. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. It needs to be an updated form of containment. It can't be what we did during the Cold War. But I absolutely think that we need to do a much better job of pushing back on this aggressive and egregious Russian behavior onto Putin. But one of the things we can and should be doing is to clean up our own house, uh, which is to say not allow this dirty Russian money that is being laundered into the West, into Europe, into London, into my new home city here, Miami, New York. They like to demonize the West. They like to accuse us of all sorts of nefarious things, but then they like to stash away their ill-gotten gains and our financial systems because they know our systems are safer and more secure. Mm -hmm. And we've got to make sure that we don't allow that to happen. Now, there is important legislation moving through the Congress that helps with that. There's also efforts to try to prevent these absurd and costly lawsuits that Russian oligarchs launch against reporters and authors trying to claim defamation. So again, another example where they demonize us on the one hand, and then they use our legal system to go after us with the other. So I think we simply don't have the luxury of saying, you know what, it's time to if you will, pivot, as the Obama administration described when it was in office to Asia and focus on China. Yes, we have to focus on China. No doubt about it. I don't think anyone's arguing that we shouldn't, but we can't take our eye off what Mr. Putin is doing. After all, I mean, it, it is Putin who, uh, and this was in the intelligence community report that came out a couple months ago. It was Putin who interfered in the 2020 election, not, not China. In China. Now, they, they may have thought about it, but then they thought better of it. And it, it has been Putin who has killed or attempted to kill Russians on NATO soil, whether in England or Berlin, Vienna, you name it. And, you know, she is moving in that direction of trying to capture some people. But um, these attacks are happening on NATO territory and the whole uh, munitions depot explosions, yeah. that the hacking It just happened recently, the Colonial Pipeline hack, and the administration said it came from Russia, but they were trying to downplay, it seemed to me, any link to the Kremlin or the Russian government itself. And that, I think, is a mistake because these things don't happen in a vacuum.
1: They don't, and this is – you have to distinguish between state-sponsored and state-enabled and and admit that the the line between those things is very thin. The way Russia uses its hackers is they basically let them – do what they want as long as they don't hack Russian interests and, and enable their ability to hack the West. It's not like it was like Putin said, hack this, hack the colonial, but it's just let these guys operate and they, and they operate.
0: And just to reinforce that point, Brian, when was the last time we read a report that Russian authorities went after Russian hackers? When was the last time Russian authorities went after these agents who are either assassinating or attempting to assassinate these people? Instead, they get promoted to the Duma. Uh, You know, they're rewarded. They're, They're not prosecuted. Unless I missed it, when did Russian authorities launch an investigation into Navalny's poisoning? Instead, they arrest Navalny for having the gall to return to his home country. So uh, it is an environment in which even if Putin doesn't sign off on each and every one of these activities, he has created an environment in which they're not only condoned, they're encouraged, and therefore he bears responsibility for them.
1: Yeah, no, I call it a venture capital foreign policy, is the way. The way it is. Mark Ellioti calls it an ad hocracy. I think we're basically talking about the exact same thing there. And mm-hmm. you know how it's been described to me, how it works with hackers is the FSB and the GRU keep a very close eye on the cyber underworld. Anybody that distinguishes themselves as being particularly talented in that world is going to get an offer they can't refuse, basically. Precise. And that's that. To set up the second half, we want to. I want to kind of zero in on President Biden's summit, upcoming summit with Vladimir Putin. We're talking a bit here about. China and Russia. I see China as this long-term threat. It's a rising power, believes time's on its side, for the time being more or less willing to free ride on Western hegemony because it is patient. That makes it a long-term strategic threat, no doubt about it, in more of a traditional great power sense. Russia, I see as a—it's almost— I'm really reluctant to use this analogy, but I'll use it anyway with a lot of caveats attached to it, but it's almost like a state sponsor of terrorism in a lot of ways, right? It's this declining power that poses a much more severe short-term threat than China poses. Now, I like to say the U.S. government should be able to chalk, walk, and chew gum at the same time, but unlike you, I've not worked in the U.S. government, let alone the higher echelons of it. Does the USG have the bandwidth To have a doctrine to contain Russia and a doctrine to contain China
0: at the same time. Do we have to pivot or can we do both these things at once? We can and we have to. I don't think we have a choice. I think we have to make the commitment to deal with both these. Now, I agree with your characterization. But let me just say, China is also a threat right now. If you look at what they're doing in Hong Kong, if you look at what they've done with the Uyghurs, if you look at the muscle flexing toward Taiwan Taiwan. and the efforts in the South China Sea and so on. So yes, it is a long-term threat because of what you said, which is it is a rising power and and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. But it also is a challenge and a threat right now. Russia, I I think you're right. It's a declining power for the most part which I think makes it more desperate. And when you're in a desperate mode, you tend to do more desperate things. And that can be more threatening in the short term. So I think we don't have a choice. Now, this also gets in the whole issue of burden sharing, where we need our allies to step up. And while he didn't handle it in the most graceful diplomatic way, Donald Trump was right. And he wasn't the first president. President Obama raised this issue of 2% on spending. Uh, as well but but the general point is right which is our NATO allies need to do more we can't be everywhere, though we do need to take a leadership role. And our allies in Asia, the same thing. They can't always simply turn to the United States and look to us to solve all of the world's problems. But this is where maintaining good alliances is is extremely important. You know, President Trump, I think, made a terrible mistake in dealing with China in his first days in office when he left the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which was a trade agreement among a number of Asian and Latin American countries that did not include... China. And that would have been a great way to deal with China without China, if you will. And, you know, the bad relations that President Trump, I think, bears most of the responsibility for with Europe, uh, particularly, say, with Germany and, and the concerns about his commitment to NATO, all that raised a lot of concerns. Now we're seeing, unfortunately, I think an overcompensation by the Biden administration, particularly as it relates to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the decision to waive sanctions on Nord Stream 2 AG. And in particular, I don't understand the decision on Matthias Warnig, uh, who's the CEO of it and a Putin crony and a former Stasi agent, maybe still a Stasi agent. I'm not sure you're ever a former agent in those (laughs) senses at all. So, uh, you know, yes, there's damage to be fixed from the previous administration. But the current administration, I gave it kudos in the beginning. I was pleased with the Biden administration in the first couple months. And I know it's only the end of May, but I am getting concerned about where it's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we had a very, very
1: lively discussion on the podcast last week about the Nord Stream 2 uh, sanctions waiver with Paul Massara from the Helsinki Commission and Josh Rudolph from the GMF. One more thing I did want to pivot to before we moved on to talk about the upcoming summit is I've been throwing this idea out that we should start offering countries like Ukraine major non-NATO ally status. Ukraine, Georgia, if they kind of get their Democratic Act packed together, Moldova, how difficult would that be to get through the—what you know, what has to happen for that to be granted? Is that something the president can, can give unilaterally,
0: and how politically difficult or toxic would this be? How do you view this? So I I would leave Moldova out of this equation, though, because Moldova, I think, um, is a very split country, as you know, and I don't think aspires to join NATO, which both Georgia and Ukraine do. Now, one day, I hope actually Moldova will have that interest. But I think right now, if we inserted that issue, particularly with their election coming up, that wouldn't be helpful. There is growing frustration in both Ukraine and Georgia at the lack of progress toward membership, which was promised in 2008 in Bucharest at the NATO summit, in which the communique said Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. And here we are 13 years later without much progress in that direction. The United States could go ahead and grant them the non-NATO status that you mentioned. Um, It should be done in consultation with support from Congress. But I think that is very gettable. I think there is strong bipartisan support for deepening ties with both Ukraine and Georgia, though there is concern about the domestic situations in both countries, particularly corruption in Ukraine and the political crisis that Georgia hopefully is emerging from now. And yet I do think that there would be strong bipartisan support in Congress for deepening the security ties with both countries. That said, that status does not bring with it Article 5 security guarantees. And that's what both Ukraine and Georgia ultimately want. I mean, it effectively
1: allows for deeper defense cooperation. That's what we're reading between the lines. That's basically the main. It doesn't provide any security guarantees from the U.S. side, or does it? Correct. Or can it be tailored that way?
0: That, no, that's correct. I mean, it, it would be a deepening of ties. It would increase cooperation. It would increase exchanges. It would increase provision of military equipment. And in fairness to the previous administration, unlike the Obama administration, President Trump did authorize the provision of lethal military assistance to Ukraine actually and Georgia, which is also uh, often forgotten in that equation. Yeah. And that so far seems to be continuing under the under the Biden administration, that kind of support. Right. Now, circling just back to Belarus for a minute now, kind of
1: to put a bow on our the, the early part of our conversation here. Looking at this, are we and I I fluctuate on this. Are we doomed to effectively look at a kind of Belarus-Russian union? Are, are Belarus and Russia the same policy problem set? for us now? Are we dealing with, as I've often said, a Lukashenko-Putin axis or a Belarus-Russia axis? Or is it possible to nudge a post-Lukashenko-Belarus toward the West? I think it's a heavy lift. I think it's a very heavy lift because the Russians have the assets in place. They're ready to dominate it. But how do you view this?
0: I, I think it depends on how long Lukashenko stays in power. The longer he stays in power, the more likely that union state will come about and the more there will be an undermining of belarus's sovereignty and, and national identity with him gone i don't anticipate that a post lukashenko belarus would be interested in sacrificing its national identity its sovereignty its independence i think there would be strong resistance to a union state and i i think there already is that resistance to a union mm-hmm. state among the population i think if lukashenko felt this is the only way he could stay in power he would do it But I I think he also recognizes that that could trigger a strong backlash among the population. And I think even Putin has to understand that. And I I think it is in part why we have not seen Russian military tanks and an overt Russian military move into Belarus in support of Lukashenko. Because I think even Putin, again, I think his understanding of Belarus, just like his understanding of Ukraine, is not good. I think even he would realize that he would turn a population that – up until recently has been largely neutral at worst, maybe even a little pro-Russia at times in the best of days he would turn that against, against Russia and against him, and I don't think he wants to risk that.
1: Yeah, the public opinion polls reflect that, and surprise, surprise, Lukashenko's banned public opinion polls that he doesn't like going forward. Well, that's a great way to segue into the second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look ahead to the upcoming summit in Geneva between U.S. President Joe Biden and Kremlin leader Vladimir Putin. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the U.T. McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center. Joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David is a senior fellow in a lecture at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Circle Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the power vertical blog, and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Кадры,
0: которые мы получили только что Владимир Путин, Ник- по никто не слушал послушайте. посты. Это Навальный, искусство. я уже делаю раз свою раз... работу о сотруднике безопасности С новым годом вас. С Новым веком.
1: So we learned this week that President Biden will meet Vladimir Putin for the first time as president in Geneva on June 16th. David, allow me to quote you back to yourself. Writing in the Bulwark last week, you asked... Quote, should the United States be pursuing normalization with an immensely corrupt authoritarian regime that arrests, tortures and kills its domestic opponents, supports the like-minded authoritarian leaders elsewhere, interferes in our elections and hacks our networks? Do we want normalized ties with a leader who Biden rightly agreed is a killer? Now, I think, David, you and I can agree that President Biden doesn't have any illusions about Putin. When they met, when President Biden was Vice President Biden, he reportedly said to Putin, I'm looking into your eyes and I don't think I see a soul. Putin reportedly responded, we understand each other, which I, I thought is, I, I could actually see that happening. The president knows who he's dealing with here. And we both also know that President Biden and his administration would like to turn this relationship with Russia. I don't think they're talking about a new reset. I don't think they're talking about a new detente. I think what they would like to do and what I'm hearing that they would like to do is to create a stable, predictable, albeit adversarial relationship. It's almost like bringing the Cold War back in terms of the stability of the Cold War. My issue with this is is that Putin knows he lost the Cold War and he knows that the unpredictability and the chaos in this relationship is to his asymmetrical advantage and i think he's he he has no reason to give up on that and if he does it would be it would be a tactical retreat in my opinion what are your hopes your fears your expectations going to this summit i mean imagine you're back in your old job I assume as assistant secretary, you would have had a a voice in the interagency process in preparing the president to go into this summit. What would you be trying to get on the table there? Imagine you're in the Oval. Imagine you're in the secretary's office.
0: What would you be advising here? Well, Brian, I think think we have to step back and remember that President Biden made this offer when Russia was massing uh, lots of troops on the Russian-Ukrainian border and in occupied Crimea, and when there was great concern that Alexei Navalny was on his deathbed. And I think part of the decision behind the offer was to try to keep those two things from really taking the next step, which was a full-scale reinvasion, if you will, of Ukraine and the murder, as I would put it, of Navalny. And Putin has waited, uh, waited until I think actually it was this week, until he firmly agreed to a meeting with a set time and a, and a set place. And so it created the impression that the president of the United States wanted and needed this meeting more than the Russian president. Mm -hmm. I think that reminds us of mistakes from the Obama administration and the reset policy, where we constantly seem to be coming across as wanting and needing that relationship more than Moscow did. And it it does seem to me that just because Putin didn't launch a full scale uh, reinvasion of Ukraine, just because he didn't murder Navalny, that's not good enough to warrant a meeting with the president of the United States. So if I had been and I obviously wasn't, and I'm not sure I would have been if I had been in that position anyway in government, I would have said, why? Why would you, the, the time of the president is the most valuable resource he has. Mm-hmm. And this is time I think that is not going to be well spent. And I also think that it creates an awkward setting where even if they don't hold a formal joint press conference together, there will be a photo spray. And uh, President Biden is going to get asked if no regular reporters are there by a cameraman. Mr. President, do you still think the man standing next to you, Mr. Putin, is a killer? And I sure hope that President Biden is prepared to give the same answer he gave to George Stephanopoulos in in March, and that is, yes, I do, uh, because that was the right answer. And if he's going to say that... What's Putin going to say in response? And then it could risk spiraling out of control from there. So it puts President Biden, I think, in an awkward spot. President Biden demonstrated in this first week in office that he is able to get things done over the phone. He and President Putin agreed to renew New Start uh, for five years. That didn't entail a meeting between the two leaders. They got it done over the phone. They got it done through their negotiator's. Uh, and that's the way it should have continued i think it is an unwise move and i think increasingly as developments unfold including with what we discussed in the first half about events in belarus and putin's support for lukashenko in light of that it looks increasingly like like a bad idea the other thing i would just add brian if i can is There is one way I think President Biden could help, and that is if he were to meet with both Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya before he were to meet with Putin and with President Zelensky of Ukraine before he were to meet with Putin. Ukraine and Belarus are both going to be prominent issues between Biden and Putin, and to discuss them with Putin without having discussed them with the, I think, legitimate leaders of both countries is a major mistake.
1: Now, I know you would rather this summit not be taking place, but if it is taking place, what should President Biden hope to achieve and get out of this summit? What should we be hoping to, to – to, what, what's the deliverable that can come out of this that, that would be in the best-case scenario for you?
0: Well, as you said, they have used the phrase predictability and stability. I think they need to to realize that's not going to happen. Mr. Putin doesn't want predictability. They also need to stop talking about what's good for Americans is good for Russians. It's good for the world, because that reminds me also of a mistake. I think the Obama administration made, which was talking about win win solutions. Putin doesn't think that way. He thinks in zero sum terms. So to me, the best that we could hope for is maybe a commitment for more arms control negotiations. There may be mutual interest in that. But beyond that, I think our expectations should be incredibly low, even though I've argued that President Biden should set as a precondition ending Putin's support for Lukashenko before going to the summit, that won't happen. And I don't think that'll be a deliverable from the summit. I don't think we can count a deliverable that he'll respect Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. I don't think we should put any stock into anything Putin would say that I'm going to stop hacking your systems. Uh, let's have a working group. That, that that These are all absurd things. It was a mistake to describe this as a summit. Summits imply deliverables. I don't think there are going to be any major deliverables. So I think if he's going to go ahead and do this no matter what, uh, they just need to lower expectations as much as possible because I don't think there's going to be much that will right. be to show for it. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we would have expected that
1: this meeting was going to be dominated by things like the Winds hack and, and the Colonial Pipeline hack and the troop buildup on Ukraine's border. Suddenly, it's been overshadowed, of course, by the Ryanair hijacking. It shifted the focus from Putin to Lukashenko, I think, incorrectly, because I think the focus should be on both of them here. Yeah. But it's it's changed what's on top of the agenda here. How does this – my gut tells me this is not good for U.S. interests, that this has shifted the agenda this way. Maybe, am I missing something? No, I
0: I think you're spot on. But let me add to it, unfortunately, which is to say that the situation inside Russia is getting worse and worse by the day. And I hope that issue does not get dropped from at least President Biden's list of issues to raise. Uh, We're seeing more and more organizations and individuals being designated as undesirable foreign agents or even now extremists. In order to disqualify this legislation now, to disqualify anyone who has worked for an undesirable organization from running for any office for a set period of time, we see Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty essentially being forced out of Russia, and there's not enough pushback, in my view, on that. And we see Medusa being designated an important source also for news and analysis about what, what's happening in Russia. And it's only going to get worse as, as Russia gets closer to the parliamentary elections. So in addition to all the things that you and I have raised, the internal situation in Russia is getting worse. There will be some people who are you know what, there's, that's none of our business. We're not going to be able to do anything about it. I think that's a major mistake. It's not to say That whether Putin remains leader of Russia is our business, that's for Russians to decide. But we have to stay true to our values and principles, particularly where President Biden has said democracy and human rights are going to be a central part of his foreign policy. And if they are, Russia is a huge test of President Biden's commitment to those issues. He can't go out of Geneva without having said something not just privately, but publicly. Do you
1: think we should be pushing these things to the top of the agenda and dealing with the Ryanair incident lower on the agenda because that uh, get these concerns about the, the Russia's domestic situation, Ukraine, the solar winds hack before we get to this? Because by putting the, the Ryanair incident at the top of the agenda, that risks, for lack of a better term, hijacking the entire agenda, which would I think would be,
0: be to Putin's liking. Well, you know, we're what more than two weeks away from the Biden-Putin meeting. Who knows what's going to happen? between now and then. I don't think anyone was predicting the Ryanair incident uh, this past Sunday. So who knows what could happen between now and then. You know, getting to your point at the very beginning of, of this chat, there may be an interest on Putin's part to create some other distraction that takes our attention away from all these issues that we've been talking about. So I'm reluctant to predict what that might right. be, but don't don't rule out anything, I- including, by the way, some sort of release. Now, you know, there were these reports that one of the two Americans who are being detained in Russia has now come down with the covid virus. Uh, Maybe Putin frees uh, Paul Whelan and Trevor Reed as a way to offer a a goodwill sign, Uh, I hope. That wouldn't be exaggerated by the administration into seeing, thinking this is some major concession. These are two Americans who have no business being in a Russian prison. Mm-hmm. And so for Putin to release them, obviously, that would be great for the two individuals involved. But again, it's, it's, it's like not reinvading Ukraine. It's like not killing Navalny. Putin shouldn't be rewarded for undoing bad things that he's already done.
1: I wanted to take us all now full circle um, and go back to Ryanair and tie this all together in a neat little bow because that's what we do. Um, I mean, we've seen the European Union impose some measures against Belarus, basically not, you know, not allowing Belavia to fly to European airports or over over European airspace, stopping all EU-based carriers from from entering Belarusian airspace. I believe the U.S. has done the same with U.S. carriers. Have the measures that have been taken in response to this? been sufficient? I'm assuming you're going to say no. Um, and if, if not, what more can we be doing here?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I give credit to the EU. I think they reacted very quickly. Of course, they had a already scheduled meeting the day after the Ryanair incident and use that meeting to announce their, their policy on the flights. And I think good for them for doing that. There's obviously no Belavia flights to the United States. Right. But uh, there are flights from the United States to, say, Moscow, where flying over Belarus airspace could be involved. We, I think, need to explicitly say what we have implicitly suggested, and that is removal of Lukashenko is, is our goal here. Okay. I think we have to come out and and recognize and state the obvious that as long as he remains in power, he remains a threat to the people of Belarus. He remains a threat now to the EU. Uh, again, imagine if the Ryanair pilots decided to keep flying to Vilnius. What would the MiG have done? Probably not have shot Probably. it down. <laughs> but uh, it would have been a pretty tense time right there. And it also creates this precedent where if you and I are on a plane flying over the territory of an authoritarian regime, We might be sitting next to a dissident or a critic. Is our plane going to get forced down? So we have to make, uh, I think, an example of Lukashenko and and make it clear to authoritarian leaders around the world that that kind of behavior is bad. But frankly, it shouldn't have taken this Ryanair incident for us to have reached this point. We should have realized even before last August with the presidential election and Lukashenko's efforts to wrongly claim victory, that Lukashenko has been a threat. He has been a master at playing us uh, and Russia off of each other. It is time for us to get more serious about these authoritarian threats, push back more strongly, stand for our values and principles, and uh, not grant any legitimacy or provide the safe haven of ill-gotten gains for anyone in these regimes.
1: You no, know, I thought of uh, when this happened. I thought of how many times I mean, we, we we've all flown over Belarusian airspace in one one way, shape, or form or another. Is this a good opportunity also to expand sanctions against these Belarusian companies and their their Russian enablers? The thing that we talked about a couple of weeks back, where you were on the podcast last.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You know, the the potash and and, uh, oil refining capabilities that the Belarus has. And it's also time to force those in the Gulf region to choose. Do they want to stay in the good standing of the United States or do they want to keep doing business with Mr. Lukashenko? I have in mind, in particular, the United uh, Arab Emirates, where Lukashenko seems to have a very close and good ties. Um, These these countries are allies of the United States. But they're not acting like allies of the United States when they're enabling the behavior and activities of of Lukashenko. So it's time to force some tough, uncomfortable decisions on some of our allies and some of our adversaries and also force Mr. Putin to make a decision. You want to stand with Lukashenko? That's fine. Then you're not going to meet with the president of the United States. I wish that were the case, but I don't think it's going to be.
1: And that appears to be a good note to end on as I'm getting notifications from the podcast gods that my, my my time is running short. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Ritual Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from sunny Miami, Florida has been David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David's a senior fellow and a lecturer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. David, as always, thank you for an enlightening discussion. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And the one and only Mariah Jalad, who handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a whole hell of a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will take a hiatus next week because my hardworking and awesome production team needs and deserves a little bit of a break. But we'll be back in two weeks' time. Happy Memorial Day, everybody. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.